Okay, happy Hanukkah. As I said, I do. I want to explore a piece from Ketem Paz on the mysterious aspect of Tohu, ether, and darkness, especially appropriate for this time of Hanukkah, as we know the famous Midrash of the second verse of the Torah. But there are in the second verse of the Torah four items mentioned which are signifying darkness or lack of clarity or formation. You have Tohu, one, Bohu, two, Choshech, three, and Tahom, four. Majashically, the Torah says that there was some mysterious quality to the universe that even before Hashem made plants and stars and moon and, and human beings, but inherent in the very structure of reality itself is some aspect that would lead to four exiles corresponding to these four elements of Tohu, Bohu, Choshech, and Tahom. They say Tohu is Babylon, Bohu is the um, Persian exile, sorry, Tohu is the Babylonian exile, Bohu is the Persia and Medea exile, Choshech, darkness, is the Greek exile, which is the Hanukkah exile, and Tahom, the infinite abyss, is the seemingly never-ending Roman exile. So Hanukkah is corresponding to the Greek exile, the overcoming of the darkness of the Greeks. Um, so that's very interesting. Now, what does it mean that these four exiles are already hinted to in the second verse of the Torah? And it's an extremely deep foundation in Torah philosophy and truth that really the structure of reality itself and the creation process is encoding history, is encoding future possibilities unfolding in the space of possibility. So anyway, let's dive right into this Ketan Paz. So he quotes a mimer in the Zohar, Zohar Bereshis, Daf 16, Amad Aleph. And instead of just reading that Zohar, because it's extremely complicated without any commentary, we'll just look at the commentary. Vata Avera Maimer, says the Ketan Paz. This was the Ketan Paz from the 1600s. He wrote the Zemer, the song Bar Yochai, that the, those in the Sephardi community sing more often the, the song Bar Yochai as a, as a tribute to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, to give honor to that holy tzaddik, the greatest tzaddik in many ways. So, Kavar Damnu Lamala Inyan Hatohu Hanikre Hiuli Bilshona Pilosafim we're talking about tohu. Tohu is the Hebrew word for ethereal space of possibility. The philosophers in Greek call it hiuli, hakadmoni, those Greek philosophers. Very interesting, right? So we're in Hanukkah, we're dealing with our battle against the Greeks, but it's definitely true that Greek philosophy had huge, huge influences from Torah Judaism. It just, as we'll see, broke off so much of what's higher than some of these philosophical concepts. They sort of put the roof um, way too low to what the universe is all about. So the Greek philosophers had an idea of tohu and ether, but we're going to see that there are three levels. It appears, if I'm reading this correctly, there are really three levels of ether, and the Greeks, they learned of ether from us, they learned of the concept of ether, but they stopped at the lowest one. So let's see. So the Greek philosophers knew of the idea of hiuli of ether, which we call tohu. The Greeks received this secret from the Jewish sages, from the Israeli sages, this idea of ether. But, says the Ketan Pas, the Greeks received from us, 
Only the limited concept of the lower revealed idea of ether, but not the hidden upper ether. So one of the, my favorite aspects of this book, which is extremely important in my opinion, is this idea that there are multiple levels of ether. There are multiple levels of ethereal spaces of possibility giving rise to different levels of reality at all. So that you have an upper ethereal space of higher worlds, of like that this ethereal space is containing all possible expressions of higher worlds, and you have successively lower spaces of ether or tohu for successively lower worlds. That we have a concept that there is a tohu in the world of Atsilut, that there is an ethereal space of possibilities which gives rise to the completely godly world of Atsilut, which is, so to speak, Hashem's mental map of all that would unfold in reality, but from the perspective of a divine mind or the divine plan. So you have an ethereal space of possibilities at that level. But, v'tohu lamata kudumato, and then there is another type of ethereal space that is similar to this higher ether, but in the lower world. So there's not just one ethereal space is the point. Those holy sages, peace be upon them, only revealed to the Greeks the idea of lower ether, but they kept concealed from the Greeks the idea of higher spaces of ethereal space. The Greeks only understood that there was a concept of four elements, which we also probably taught them, this idea of four elements, coming out of a fifth element or a fifth ethereal space, giving rise to the four particular elements. They only, they only understood this idea of ether, and they stopped there. But there are higher levels of ether that the sages of Israel did not reveal to the Greeks. But obviously, there's nothing that exists below that doesn't have an upper root. So if, the, if in the, the very immediate world, all the four basic elements of earth, air, fire, and water are coming out of an ethereal space, a possibility called ether. So since that is something existing on a lower world, there must be a corresponding upper root to the idea of ether as well, in an aspect of a higher ether. As the Rambam, at the very beginning of his entire review of all of what we know, you know, in, in bullet points called Mishnah Torah, right there at the very, very beginning of that extremely long work, he speaks about this, that there's an ether from which four elements come. Even this lower aspect of ether, it's something that confounds people. So the word to confound is matahe, which is the same etymology as tohu. So that's the word that Hebrew, the Hebrew word for ether is called to, which means something confounding. The the essence of something confounding. What's the essence of something confounding? What's a, what's the essence of what confounds us? The essence of what confounds us is as follows. Because ether is an extremely refined material. Nadar mitsura. It's a material that is completely lacking of form. So that's like a paradox. That's something that is essentially categorically confusing. The idea of pure form without any particular, I'm sorry, pure material, sorry. The idea of pure material without any particular form, that's the essence of something that would confound us.
Why? Because it's impossible to really form what that is in your mind, because the mind, in order to grasp something, demands a particular form, demands some definition. In other words, the deep thing he's saying is that all conscious experience, to be called a revealed conscious experience to human beings, the experience to really grasp it must come into some type of form, whether it's a mental form, like it's hard to grasp the idea of pure infinity. To really grasp anything in the set of numbers, I can grasp a billion, even though it's huge, but I can grasp that there's so many ones. But to grasp pure infinity, which is implying no particular expression of form in the realm of numbers, just it's essentially formlessness of numbers, which gives for gives birth or rise to any particular number, my mind understands there's a concept of infinity, but it's ungraspable because it has no particular definition. It's not defined into some certain number or at least some certain equation or some certain property. So this is what Tohu is. That's, that's the essence. That's the categorical essence of what confounds us. We know that all things are coming from infinity, whether or try to, we imagine the species of some birds. Like, instead of, we know that there are cardinals or blue jays, but besides each particular iteration of a blue jay or a cardinal or a sparrow, we understand that there's this more general category called the species of blue jays. But to try to picture what that is without picturing some particular blue jay, so you know it exists, but it's, it's extremely difficult to actually grasp in your mind because your mind demands to grab onto some particular form. But the fact is, is that all things are coming from their level of tohu, from their level of ether. All blue jays come from the ethereal space of the possibility of all blue jays, and so on for any iteration of, of a class or a species. So that's why this idea of ether is the essence of what confounds us, because we know it must exist logically, yet we can't really grasp it with our faculty, because the faculty of grasping demands a particular form to hold on to in order to grasp it. And here the definition of it is that all forms arise from it, but it itself has no form yet. It hasn't dressed up in any form. So therefore, it's the essence of what confounds us because it's extremely, extremely basic. It is the foundation of all forms, yet it itself has no forms. Because to experience anything, to experience it mentally or, or physically, demands some form to, to have the experience, to have a contact, such that you can have an experience. Without any form, there's no contact. There's only pure abstraction that there's this formless ether which gives birth to any form in that set. And by the way, the Rambam defines when it says that a person is created but Selim Elohim in the image of God, he says the definition of that is that we are able to extrapolate pure form from matter. That we can abstract and understand the ungraspable, the ultimate of that being ether itself. But back to our subject. If the concept of this lower ether, which is only the beginning of, there are many levels on the rungs of 
so many levels of ethereal space of possibility. But even this lowest type of ether, that which gives birth to our physical world and our most basic experiences and sensations, is still something which confounds us. But that's only at the lowest rung of the ladder. Obviously, it's way more difficult to grasp or experience successively higher levels of ether, such that there are extremely elevated levels of ethereal space of possibility giving rise to that world of pure godly thoughts called Atsilut. Of course, obviously, if we can't grasp the lowest form of ether, we cannot grasp this highest form of ether. Could basically, yeah, well, I won't go into every single word. Okay, so we don't need to get into every single word. Okay, next paragraph. So by the way, so but what we can't explore here without going through every word is it really sounds like he's setting up three levels of ether. Okay? Three basic levels of ether. The first level is, I believe, what based on what he just said, Kabbalistically identified with the level of Keter, which the Arizal says explicitly that Keter is an aspect of Tohu, an extremely elevated aspect of Tohu, which is what gives birth to what's called the wisdom point. As the verse says in Job, that wisdom comes from nothing. So the nothing is the, is the Keter. Keter is, means the, the faculty of pure will and desire, which is the top faculty. It's called in the verse nothingness because it, the will takes, is, is boundless. The will has no particular form and it has no reason to it. It's not bounded by any reason. You can't give a reason for will. Will precedes anything. You ask somebody, why do you ultimately want this at the core of your being? The answer is just because. So that's why that's one reason. There's a, there's a lot to say, but one reason why will or keter, that, that power of keter, is called nothing because it's boundless. There, there's no prior boundary as to why it exists. It just exists. And from that deep well of Hashem's desire springs forth what's called the wisdom point. This is the sphere of this is basically the sphere of Chachma. So in other words, we say that Hashem had a deep will to express exactly what He has, will, and is currently expressing in the world. All of that, past, present, and future, is summarized in one point called the wisdom point. And this point is one logic called wisdom, which govern as as the Tomer Devorah says, which. Um, spreads out over everything as the verses in Kohelet, that wisdom gives birth to everyone. So from one singular point, from one singular logic, Hashem runs past, present, and future. And it is Keter, called nothingness, which gives birth to that point. So in other words, what it means is the level of godly desire willed that this one singular logic should come out with all of its features. You can, And the point is, you can't ask 
why this logic with all of its features that would be an operation for all time? Why not a different logic? And the answer is you, you can't ask why. The, the, the answer is you don't know. This particular logic is exactly what Hashem wanted, and it comes out from what's called nothingness. Precisely because you can't ask why he wants this over that. He just does. Because it's just what he wants. Once you have the system of logic, you can explore the system of logic. Well, there's, there's as much to explore about that, that wisdom point as anything that ever comes out of it. Which is everything. Everything is governed by that wisdom point. But why that wisdom point, why the creator wanted that wisdom point, you can't ask. So the first level of ether then is called the will. Because the will is something that has no definition. It simply produces the wisdom point. Uh, and we don't know why or how. It just wants it and it creates it. That's the first level of ether. Is therefore the cat or the will. Second level of ether. Now we have, now he just defined <coughs> the second level of tohu, which is bina. So in we look at, we can meditate on Hashem's name. Hashem's essential name is, is Hashem. Yud and He and Vav and He. So the first level of tohu was the Keter. That's like that you look at the letter Yud. It has an upper tip, a lower tip, and the middle point. The upper tip of the Yud is, is symbolizing and referring to this invisible level of Keter. Kind of like they say, to write any letter on the Sefer Torah, on the Torah scroll, you gotta put the you gotta put the ink down on the page. That very first place where the ink hits the page is like the tip of any yud. Because every letter is really just some extension of a yud, some extension of a point. The very first contact of the ink to the page, which is symbolizing will, because there must even be a will for any letter to be written, for anything to be expressed, requires that there first be a desire that it should even get started. So the desire that something should even get started is symbolized by the very first contact of the ink on the page. Because without that desire, there's not even the initial contact of the thing that's being expressed, of the letter that's being written. So the very, the very tip of any letter, which every letter is an extension of a yud, because that yud represents the wisdom. And that's to say that all, all logic... All expressions are first summarized in one wisdom point, which is one Yud. All letters, infinite letters, are all coming out of Yud. So that's the wisdom. But the tip of the Yud is the desire, and that's Keter. The tip of the Yud is the Keter, the dot, the first dot of any letter. The wisdom is that all letters are really just an extension of, of the Yud, which looks like a point. So we have our first ether, the keter, the desire. Then we have then we have the first produced thing, which is that yud, which encapsulates all letters flowing out of it because it's the one logic, it's the one wisdom. And then we have a second layer of tohu, of ether now, that he's saying, which is the idea of bina, which is called the first he of God's name, yud and he and vav and he.
Why? Because Bina now is being described as that in the mystical way the world was created, so you had that desire, which is empty and invisible and functions as ether, producing one grand yud, one grand singularity point of wisdom, which is the wisdom and logic of all processes, past, present, and future. And then from that yud point is produced sort of like the way that there's a beautiful luminescent ring around the moon, what's called a, a circ- an encircling palace, or heichal, which is called Bina. And he, he gives that analogy later, in some, some other point in the Sefer. That this, this one, this, this, we got a key in here. That one wisdom point, that one singular logic, produces a great letter He, the first He of God's name, so to speak. And what that He is, is that the entire singularity of logic that is summarized in that Yud fully expresses and expands itself out in a hay. Instead of just being the entirety of the logic all collapsed into one point, conceptually speaking, everything that was collapsed into that one point is radiating out to express itself entirely in a great palace, so to speak, that is building out that entire logic into its full manifestation and fruition. But the very fascinating thing is, is that this is a full manifestation and fruition of everything in that point before it's actually applied. So in other words, what this is like is we have somebody who wants to build a building. So we have a creator who wants to build a world and he wants to build out the world through history. History is the space and time that the creator carved out to build out his world. Of course, he could have built out his world immediately, but he wanted it to be delayed. He wanted it to take time so that we could participate, etc. So the first level of ether is that, boom, he wanted to make a world and he wanted there to be one singular logic, one ultimate plan, one ultimate, yeah, one ultimate plan that would run the whole building procedure. That's the that's the wisdom, the chachma coming out of the keter. That's the wisdom coming out of the desire. That's the first transfer through the top level of ether. Once there's that singular logic point, that singular logic point then expresses itself fully, but still in the aspect of preparation. This would be like you have an architect who all of a sudden wants to make a building, and boom, he sees the whole picture in one point, and then the next stage is he draws a blueprint. And that blueprint, or series of blueprints, is going to be the master map of how to actually build out this thing. It's, the, it's going through every step of building the building before actually building the building. That's what Bina is. Bina is all the blueprints. That's this hay. That's this beautiful shining of Every bit of that point shining out into one beautiful blueprint, which is like a holographic, you know, like some holographic projection from a point of the entire universe unfolding from beginning to end, but still in the level of intention plans. It's just it's just the divine blueprint. And this blueprint thing is the second level of ether, the second major level of ether. This is also a level of ether. 
Why? As the Ramban Zal says in the Pasuk, Okay. Why? Because this is very, very important now, Kian. From the second level of ether, the second level of Tohu, this these blueprints now, these are gonna flip around in themselves, these blueprints themselves, this or this one master blueprint is gonna flip around and be like the ethereal space of possibility for everything then playing out in the lower world. Why? Because everything is the erichin, everything is in values. From the perspective of the first level of ether, of raw, pure desire, of course these blueprints are extremely, um, they're extremely defined in their boundaries and they're very graspable at that level. If you're so high in that level of consciousness, of course these Bina blueprints are extremely graspable and they're not ethereal at all. They're very, very particular and so full of form. It's a whole blueprint. It's a whole pro- mental projection of, of everything. Yet, when we go down to an even lower level below those blueprints, and we're now at the level of actually building out spiritual worlds in a process of developing time and space, so taking everything in those blueprints and actually applying them from down through all the spiritual worlds, finally congealing as physical experience that we experience from moment to moment, such that every freeze frame of particles in the universe is just some iteration of something in those blueprints. From that perspective, below the blueprints, so to speak, those blueprints are ether. So again, from the perspective of the very highest ether down to the blueprints, of course those blueprints are very, very graspable. But from our perspective, where we are being borne out from those blueprints, those blueprints are extremely ethereal and extremely unknowable. Yes, they give birth to all forms, as Bina is compared to the Aim Kalchai, the mother. Bina is called Ima. It's the principle of the mother. Well, again, think about how uh, fetus is formed in the womb. We see all the time that we know that there, when a woman is pregnant, we know that there is a developing fetus in there. But before ultrasound technology, no one really could ever see exactly what was being born. So again, this is an idea of ether. Because an ether, again, is this concept of in an uh, invisible space, a completely hidden space, which we know we intuit, we imply that everything is coming out from there. The whole organism of the child is coming from the hidden womb. So we know it's happening, yet it's invisible to our eyes. So from the second level of the second major level of tohu or ether is these blueprints. That these blueprints are called the mother principle, which gives birth to any particular iteration in the universe on all levels. We know everything is coming from there, but it's hidden from our eyes, like, like the baby in the womb. It's invisible. So this is the second major level of ether, of Tohu. Amnam, hachavana b'kolzen leimor, ki kashiyetze haratzon elyon, lahamsi ha'olamos, ruchanim v'tavim, raki hayamina roilo, tizolol miyakar, huachoshech, kedei lo hutzi od yakar mizolol. Here's the, 
here now he's going to discuss now the final layer of ether that he says Hashem's ultimate intent, his ultimate will was to create at first something very degraded, which we've gone down from the pure desire to the to the wisdom point, which encapsulates all logic, out to the blueprints that is the full unfolding and unpacking of everything in that wisdom point. Now we have the blueprints within one master blueprint. We're down to Bina. And now Hashem wants to, to draw out now real dark stuff, real degraded dark stuff called darkness, called Chayshech. Now he's defining exactly what the word darkness means. Darkness, he's going to say, darkness is actually the most absolutely physical or, or hard physical undeveloped stuff. Now, in order to show every bit of light, every bit of wisdom, every bit of genius summarized in all of those blueprints, now the upper desire wanted to draw out really, really dark undeveloped stuff to be influenced and carved in every way but everything in those blueprints in order to actually create a medium a space to show all the genius in those blueprints because without raw materials raw undeveloped materials to be formed by all the instructions in those blueprints well the blueprints remain the second level of invisible ether without uh, of invisible ether without the fetus the power of the womb the motherly power of the womb has nothing to show itself upon so therefore there needed to be now an expression of pure clay so to speak pure darkness to show the power and the genius and all those blueprints by being formed by every aspect of the blueprint now this is now this next line is, is pretty amazing. Because now when we get to this point where we've gotten the blueprints and now we get this dark material, this darkness that the blueprints are gonna shape, we have finally come to the world of distinctions, finally. We or at least the possibility of a world of Bechina, a world of distinctions. Why? Extremely critical line. Extremely critical line. Because even though every event is summarized in those blueprints, without those blueprints expressing themselves by carving and elevating and transforming so much darkness, without that we wouldn't have as much true experience and connection to all the detail that was in those blueprints. Listen, because all the detail that's in those blueprints, there's nothing coming out in the world that wasn't in those blueprints. Yet, when everything's there at the level of those blueprints, it's extremely, extremely ethereal still. We cannot grasp. We can't see that... if somebody were to have an experience at the level of Bina, they would just experience Tov. They would just experience ether. They would experience this vast, this vast feeling that everything's here, but I see no particular form yet. 
every happening for 6,000 years of history and all the levels of spiritual and physical reality are here in these blueprints. But I can't see that right now. All I see is blinding white light. And that's why the Zohar says about Bina, this level of the blueprints, that that this level is, is all mercy because all it is is the entire unfolding plan from beginning to end coming to its conclusion and perfected reality so since it's all happening at once at this level of the blueprints there's no space to experience the actual real visceral experience of being in the middle of the process because the process from the beginning to end is all there already. So to actually really feel and know and grasp and hold what it's like to be in the middle of the process, which the middle of the process is there in those blueprints, but swallowed in the oblivion of the perfection because the blueprint is ultimately capturing the plan from start to finish, really leaving no room to experience the pain and the difficulty and the challenge of being in the middle of what that blueprint is going to build. So to actually grasp all those particular experiences programmed in that blueprint requires the darkness, requires that third layer of reality, so to speak, to make it extremely oversimplified, that final layer of completely undeveloped stuff called darkness, which is going to need to take every all the steps in that master blueprint one at a time to fully grasp all the detail that is actually inherent in that blueprint. So we come out with an amazing, comforting idea that the real reason for suffering, and sometimes suffering is very intense, I'm not trying to whitewash or, or sugarcoat anyone's intense suffering, but truly, truly, the, the reason on an extremely surface, shallow level, is that we suffer and we have dreams deferred and in so many degrees because darkness in the space of unfulfilled desire and lack and imperfection is necessary to express, is, is a necessary medium to be able to express the full richness of everything in that blueprint. I'm not explaining away anyone's suffering at all but to the degree that somebody can take comfort in that idea, it's important to understand. Okay. Right? As the Rav says, because this truly is explaining the idea of an Isayam, why we go through tests. A lot to say on that. But an, 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 a sort of a, a deeper dimension of this idea is to say, what we really understand is the true root of our existence is in this blueprints. And in the true root of our existence, we already have everything. We, we aren't really sick. We aren't really poor. We aren't really single. We aren't really childless. We aren't really addicted to something, etc., etc. We aren't really. So all these challenges that when we eventually break through them is just that, well, instead of just being perfect and being created perfect, we get to by revealing who we really are through the thick cloud of darkness and challenge, we get to own who we were created to be rather than just receiving it as a gift. That the, the suffering and the challenges and the blocks actually create the necessary medium to like slow down what would otherwise be this instantaneous expression of perfection of our souls. Instead, the body, which is dark and coarse, and all that it entails by blocking us and slowing us down 
allows us to carve who we really are into this world and thereby own who we are because we get to express it rather than just receiving it. Extremely, extremely important point now. So how do we get to this darkness? How do we get to this essence of darkness, of essentially, absolutely unformed material, which is going to be this third major level of ether, the darkest stuff there is, he says, and this is this is also captured in the language of the Ramchal and Klakpiti Chachma, to get from these blueprints, these extremely exalted blueprints, or one master blueprint of all things, down to the coarse item, which is going to express those blueprints, there then needs to be endless constrictions, endless screens, making the light of the shine of those blueprints darker and darker and darker until through endless constrictions, the light is so hidden that broken off from that is finally the darkness. There's a ton to say about that. But kind of two points I want to insert here. One is, I just heard something yesterday, a very important point. You know, we're looking right now at a conceptual line from this highest exalted level of the blueprint down to the most degraded level of reality. And there's a limit to that, right? There's a limit to how much darkness there can be. But when you look at any line, even though it's a line being drawn from point A to point Z, so that would imply that there's a limited space between from point A to point Z, yet when you look at that number line, or that, or that conceptual line, there's infinite ways to slice it up. You could slice it up in inches, you could slice it up in light years, you know, you could slice it up, whatever, but you can always slice it up more. You can always slice it up more. And to the extent there, there's almost infinite simsumi, infinite layers of hiding the light shining from the blueprint down to what the lowest level was defined to be, that is what allows her to ultimately emerge this darkness. And what that tells us is something sort of even more amazing, which is when we plug in here the writings from the Weshem, Shabbat Achlama, that great Sadiq, he's telling us that the Olamatohu this or and, and he would probably say, yes, I agree with you, Captain Paz. So we're talking about the lowest level of Tohu is, as Alesham says, the roots of all unfoldings in reality for the 6,000 years. With that, and that's very significant because it tells you that the ultimate stuff of what makes our world is precisely emerging from the infinite levels of constriction 
the near infinite levels of constriction from the exalted blueprints down to the dark stuff that those blueprints are going to carve to express themselves. What that really tells you is something extremely deep from the writings of the Rizal that I'm just going to say, if you understand, you understand. If you don't, you don't. That there are four levels of God's name that are called Av Sagman Ban. And it's explained that Ban is just sort of a spin-off of Sag. Which is another way of saying that the cool thing about this lowest level of ether, this darkness, this, this medium to create the lowest levels, the most undeveloped levels, as we've been saying, every space of possibility is actually extremely full of detail. In other, in other words, what we're saying is the constitution of this darkness, which is precisely the dark medium that the blueprints are spinning off from themselves in order to express within, they're precisely emerging from every single block on every bit of light and healing coming from the, that great blueprint. In other words, the darkness of the lowest level is precisely emerging as the opposite inverse of everything in those blueprints. So that if everything in those blueprints was the key, was the key to unlock some form of success, so the darkness is coming out is the exact opposite inverse of all that light. It's produced precisely by putting as many coverings as necessary to make this darkness the anti-blueprint. That's going to be necessary so that everything in those blueprints will pour back into all those constrictions, lighting that darkness back up, pouring everything in that blueprint back into that darkness, making the darkness completely show all the light in that blueprint, making that darkness completely a perfect garment fitting on all the light in those blueprints so that now instead of being an extreme of completely blocking out all the light in that blueprint, it all reverses, which is called teshuva, which is called repentance. It all returns back to show that it was only created precisely as the perfect vessel to show all of the particular lights pouring in from those blueprints, causing them to emerge ever so slowly. And so this is why the Zohar says in many places, and the Sadiq can tell us, that the secret of the real energy of creation is Teshuvah itself. Because what Teshuvah is, is that whereas at first there was an extreme hiding of every last light in that blueprint, and that it was the particular method of, and the particular motion of darkness, that in extreme, instead of it just being some diffuse blocking, there's an extremely calculated way of blocking everything from those blueprints. When creation happens, when teshuva happens, it's only coming to reveal that the only reason for every last contour of darkness and all of its characteristics was only to be reversed, to be opened back up, to be pulled back open, to reveal that it was just precisely created in a calculated way to be reversed back around, to show everything beautiful and merciful in those blueprints. 
which tells you that, again, this is why this darkness is ethereal space of possibility as well. That's why this darkness is also called tohu and the aspect of ethereal space of possibility. In, in other words, that it's this hugely, you know, mystical idea of something that is completely formless, yet has the capacity to receive all forms. Because this lowest, this third lowest level of tohu of ether is like the anti-blueprint. So let's again, let's review our levels of ethereal space. The first ethereal space was the invisible level of will, which such that you can't ask why the creator wanted the universe in all these proportions. Out of that came the wisdom point. The wisdom point then expressed all of those blueprints. All of those blueprints is called Bina. That second level of ether, we explain all the reasons why that is. From Bina, from all those beautiful blueprints of all perfection, of all steps leading to perfection, <clears throat> through infinite levels of hiding and darkening that are precisely calculated to hide and conceal every last bit of healing and light from that tikkun, from the tikkunim, from those, from those preparations and reparations from that map, out comes the other side, the last level of ethereal tohu called darkness. And that darkness is going to be like a basket that is precisely ready to be opened back up again, to have all those curtains pulled back again in the manner of all the lights now coming down from that blueprint, opening it up. So it too is chock full of possibility, but just from the opposite extreme end. Whereas those blueprints is the ethereal space of all blessing, this darkness is the ethereal space of all blocking of blessing. But the two are designed that the blessing should flow back into it, producing reality, producing unfolding events. And that is darkness. Asher lazek even ba'al sev yitzira ba'ota mishnah eser spheres plima Achas Elohim Ruach Elohim Chaim Shtein Ruach Mi Ruach Shalosh Mai Mi Ruach Chakav Chata Behem Tovo Berefesh Vetit Amar Shani Shal Shel Zemize Alba Tita Refeshu At Chaim Rabba Minato Sheba Mamash Elabahu Sheba Mamash Mm-hmm. Alright, I think we got time for one more paragraph. so here's the fascinating thing. Circling this all back to the beginning of the discussion, the Greeks only understood this darkness. The Greeks only understood the great screen of dark blackness. And they thought, that's it. There's this great blackness and all items are emerging out of it. But it's the top. And we say, oh my gosh, you're really starting from the bottom here because we got 
all the spiritual worlds that are actually flowing into that darkness, pushing it out, causing it to emerge out of the black screen, that through that thick, those thick curtains of darkness that are designed precisely as we just described, through those thick curtains, the light is pushing through and emerging through, creating animals, plants, events, humans, people, etc. You Greeks, you're just ending at the darkness. You think that's just the darkness is producing everything. There is no God. That's ex- precisely what Hanukkah is saying. Hanukkah is saying it's not the darkness. That The darkness was created by the light. The darkness is like the extreme crust of the light itself produced by hiding the light in so many particular ways. So only that the light should pour back into it to produce everything in a sequence to eventually reveal itself in the coming of Mashiach. So that's the darkness of, of, of the Greeks by Hanukkah. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, and this, by the way, is, I think, the really deep reason why the Ari tells us that the reason there are eight nights of Hanukkah is that eight is referring to the sphera of Bina. The eighth sphera, if you go from top, from bottom to top, you go Malchut up to Yesod, etc., etc., up to Bina, is the eighth. Because Bina is the, the idea of the ether of these, this blueprint that we've been saying. That's amazing because we're saying that the light of Hanukkah is battling the darkness of the Greeks. Well, precisely to say that the darkness of the Greeks is just stopping the universe at that lowest level of ether. What we're saying is no. The light that actually causes that ether to do anything and, and make everything in our world, everything, every, every law of logic, every, every physical existence, every category... Everything in Greek philosophy and logic is emerging out of that darkness, it's true. But that darkness is being driven by the level of the maps. The light of the Hanukkah candles is the light of Bina, says the Arizal. It means it's the light of the supernatural descending and enclothing itself in that primordial darkness of the lowest level of ether, which is the darkness of the Greeks, that the Midrash is saying that the world was Tobo and Choshech is the Greeks, that they stopped the world at the dark ether at the bottom, the lowest ethereal level. But it's, the level, it's truly the level of Bina, the level of light, that encloses itself in that thick darkness to actually make things, to, to carve and drive that darkness just to reveal everything in that Bina. This is the supernatural eight, that we say seven is the natural world because there's six sides with the essential point in the center as seven. That seven is very much cycles of nature. The eighth is the supernatural. To say that it's the supernatural pouring itself into that darkness, that lowest level of ether, that lowest level of ether that actually does anything. So that's the superiority of Torah wisdom over Greek wisdom and precisely why, God willing. And now I just had one more interesting thought on this. So if the image of the Hanukkah candles burning is the image of the Bina, pushing through the darkness of the lowest form of ether such that the halacha is your menorah needs to be, your Hanukkah needs to be low to the ground specifically, representing how the highest lights are pouring through this dark, darkest level of ether, of ether to show that it's really the light of Hashem, the light of these blueprints, which is really driving everything. We don't just start at the dark, we don't just stop at the darkness itself. 
So, but what do those candlelights actually look like? They look like a bunch of yuds. They look like a bunch of little points, which is fascinating. Because what does that tell you? It tells you, like we said, that really every letter, we're, we're saying that every letter starts with a yud. Because the yud, that point, is the wisdom point. It's the wisdom point holographically expressing in every detail that there's one point, there's one system of logic, and every particular expression of that logic is just, is just ultimately expressing the whole. Every part is expressing the whole. The apple, the water bottle, the, the event, the war, the truce, every, every particular item is just some iteration of the one singular logic, the one yud. Yes, there's the letter Lamed. Yes, there's the letter Bet. Yes, there's the letter Gimel and Dalit and all the letters. But the, even though they are distinct letters, they are ultimately starting from and are expressions of Yud, of the one wisdom point. This is called holographic reality. A hologram is where one great logic is expressed in so many particulars. Bina, then, is the first hey. That that map, that blueprint is the first hey of God is like the first hey of God's name. And what does it do? So a hey, it's brought in Kabbalah. A hey is the letter Dalid with a little vav in the middle of the Dalit. So Dalit is is numerical value of gematria four, and Vav is six. Six plus four is ten. To say, and ten is Yud, that dot, that wisdom point. To say that what Bina does is is it enables that one wisdom point to express everywhere all over the universe, and that every particular item, that that one Yud, that one wisdom point, can radiate outwards everywhere to express itself everywhere in so many particular iterations. That's what these blueprints allow for to happen. A different way of looking at the letter hey, though, is to say that there's a Dalid, and you can look at it as there's a, then a, a detached Vav, or you could look at it as a detached little Yud. It's definitely valid either way you look at it, and there's different aspects. But again, then you have this image that if Bina is the first hay of God's name, which can then be broken up as, into a Dalid and a little Yud, it's this image of the Dalid is representing any Cartesian plane, any particular space or area, because a Dalid is the most basic representation of, of cornering off a certain space. You, know, you can fill it in to make it a, a box, to make it an area. And then you have the yud inside to say what Bina does is it allows for that there should be so many spaces now, so many individual spaces, so many individual blocks of time space that that one yud can express itself in in so many different iterations. That's why Bina is like this great map. And so that's why this great blueprint. And so that's why the Hanukkah candles, even though they look like little yuds, they're precisely eight of them and they're precisely everywhere where there's a Jew lighting a Hanukkah candle to say that Bina is that the light of Bina, Hanukkah is to say that what really runs the universe is these blueprints of the light of Bina that are transmitting the one logic of the Yud of Chachma everywhere in the, in the darkness. And that's what actually causes the darkness that the Greeks stopped at to actually make anything happen.